to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. In his second inaugural address, Abraham Lincoln said about slavery, all knew that this interest was somehow the cause of the war. For historians, somehow is the key word. Slavery was the fundamental cause, but historians have written at length to show that the war was not a simple binary struggle between freedom and slavery, or between union and secession, or federal and state rights. To complicate matters further, Christopher Phillips challenges the idea that the war was a matter of North and South. The West was a region in its own right, where all these factors intermixed in ways that still affect us today. Join us to find out how, as we talk with the author of The Rivers Ran Backward, The Civil War and the Remaking of the American Middle Border, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. This is Jerry Prokopovich coming to you live from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina. Not coming to you tonight from the campus of East Carolina University, as we often do, and not speaking for East Carolina or any other institution, nor will my guest speak for anyone but himself, as we always do here on Civil War Talk Radio, where it's the almost the last... Is it the last Wednesday of February 2000? Yes, it is. Last Wednesday of February 2017, the year of 1,000 likes on Facebook, where the page Impediments of War, which tells you all about what's happening on Civil War Talk Radio, is on a drive to have 1,000 people like the page. That is a very small number in Internet parlance, but we want to get there anyway. We're up over 800 now. So tell your friends 
visit Impediments of War on Facebook and like the page. It's February. It's a little chilly this evening, but baseball season has arrived here on campus. The East Carolina Pirates went off to Mississippi to play an opening season series and got swept over the weekend, lost all three games. Everyone is agog about how the Pirates are ranked uh, in the top 25, even the top 10. Uh, might be might be a good baseball season. They almost made the World Series last year. Good to get that sweep out of the way, lose a few games early, and they can pull it together. Uh, last week, I forgot to uh, extend our usual greeting to our friends across the Civil War Talk Radio network. Network consists of one station, uh, SBB Radio in Claxton, Tennessee, Low Power FM. And we don't want to think that we've forgotten about our friends in Claxton or their neighbors in East Oak Ridge, South Clinton, and North Powell, where you can listen on the actual terrestrial radio to this show, as well as, of course, listening always online, as most of you are doing. So it's spring semester of 2017. Got an email today from my younger daughter who's off on a semester abroad in London, but she and her friends this week are traveling uh, through Europe. Uh, found out she was in Vienna. Asked if she got a chance to go to the history museum, military history museum there, see the Archduke Ferdinand's car, one of the most evocative uh, artifacts anywhere in the world, and in, in my view. And she hasn't seen it yet, but she's seen a lot of other things, always having uh, an interesting time there. Here in eastern North Carolina, I got to see some artifacts last Friday in company with the ROTC cadets of the university who go on a staff ride each year to uh, Bentonville or New Bern or uh, this year it was Fort Macon, a third system coastal fortress on the coast of east uh, eastern North Carolina near uh, uh, near, not that close to New Bern, closer to Moorhead City, uh, and we had a very, uh, very enlightening time there. Spent last Friday morning touring the fort. Each cadet had been assigned a person or uh, topic to prepare and brief the others on. So we walked around and learned about uh, what we were seeing from the students themselves. What really struck me about it was. The difference in seeing a place like Fort Macon, which I'd been to previously and looked at it as an interesting example of military architecture, as a a place where northern military strategy began to play out with the Anaconda Plan in 1862, landing troops there. But seeing it and having uh, getting briefings on topics like uh, the commanding officer or the artillery doctrine used or uh, the, the role of the principles of war, having having the briefings come from young people who are actually serving and will be serving in the United States military is very sobering uh, because these young people are the age of the young uh, volunteers of the Civil War and for them they're studying this not as, as you and I are, as something that's, that's interesting and we learn from it and, and learn more about the human condition by studying the past. But they're studying it also because they might actually have to go out and use what they've learned uh, 
to to fight, to kill, or to be killed. Uh, it, it really puts a very, very different gloss on the whole study of military history to stop and, and talk with people who are engaged in the practice today, and, and something we should not forget to do periodically. Well, enough of that grim uh, topic. We'll look ahead uh, more optimistically now to the weeks ahead here on Civil War Talk Radio. We have a schedule change to announce. I think this is the first schedule change in 12 years. Our guest uh, next week was going to be Andrew Bledsoe, but we are moving him to March 15th, and next week our guest will be Professor Carol Reardon, author of many books, uh, most recently uh, With a Sword in One Hand and Jomini in the Other, The Problem of Military Thought in the Civil War North, a very uh, short but perceptive book about military thought. And I've been, been trying to get Professor Reardon to join us for a long time, and I'm delighted that she can. But she had a, a schedule hitch of her own for March 15th, so uh, she's agreed to move ahead to March 1st. So we'll have her on next week. Then nobody on March 8th. It's spring break. I'll be surfing and uh, uh, staying out late. Actually, I won't be doing any of those things. I'll be home alone, guarding the house, taking care of the cat. Uh, while the rest of the family is elsewhere over spring break, but no live show that week. And on March 15th, the original guest from the first will join us, Andrew Bledsoe, with his book on the volunteer junior officers of the Civil War, uh, appropriate to the, the staff ride with the ROTC cadets recently. On the 22nd, originally no live show because the university's Wichard lectures that night uh, that may change, but uh, for now, no one, uh, no, no lineup. On the 29th, James Conroy returns with his book about Lincoln's White House. He is the winner of a share of this year's Lincoln Prize. I really enjoyed his first book on the uh, the Hampton Roads Conference, and I'm sure Lincoln's White House is, is as good. I look forward to reading it. On April 5th, a topic I don't know a darn thing about uh, tokens, Civil War tokens. What are they? You'll have to listen and find out. Scott Hopkins collects them, knows all about them, and he'll tell us what are Civil War tokens. And that gets up in, into the month of April. Uh, more shows coming up in that month. Uh, you'll have to look online to see them. One I mentioned last week, uh, I think on the 19th, Judy Giesberg has a a book just out, Sex and the Civil War, Soldiers, Pornography, and the Making of American Morality, and that uh, certainly promises to be intriguing. So you can find out about those from Impediments of War. You can go to the website by that name, impedimentsofwar.org, click on the PayPal button that is there, donate money to the cause of Civil War Talk Radio, and uh, contribute to the Book and Home Heating Fund, as I sit here with a space heater next to me and a sweater at hand because our furnace has still not been replaced. That's supposed to happen tomorrow. Uh, hopefully they'll show up and all will go well. Your deductions, even though they are given with a charitable heart, are not charitably deductible on your taxes. 
uh, be sure you don't do that. No one, anyone going uh, to the big house on account of tax shenanigans or donations to Civil War Talk Radio. Well, let's talk about, uh, once again, as we always do, the 19th century and go back to the the middle border, the land. Well, let's find out what that means. Where is the middle border? Christopher Phillips is the author who has written about it, the book called The Rivers Ran Backward, The Civil War and the Remaking of the American Middle Border. Uh, Christopher, are you there? I am here. Welcome to the show. Nice to be here. So you, uh, this is a topic uh, you point out in the book that you've you've been working on for a very long time. Uh, tell us first a little bit about your your background. What got you interested in the Civil War in the first place? Oh, I've been interested in the Civil War since I was been about five. Um, ah. But but growing up in a in a sort of north central Illinois in a rural county. Um, the only um, reminders of the war really were um, largely Union monuments. Um, no battlefields nearby. Um, nothing really interesting um, with regards to the war. Um, but my grandmother and uh, great aunt took me on an, uh, a couple of vacations when I was five and six years old. East, in uh, one of those places we stopped was Gettysburg, and um, and that was it for me. <laughs> mm. I've been uh, fascinated ever since, and I'm sure that uh, my story is not uh, uh, the only story like that out there. No, not not unusual at all among uh, people who uh, talk on the show, and I'm sure many who listen to the show have had the same experience. Uh, so your day job involves history as well. Can you tell us about that? I'm professor of history at the University of Cincinnati, and uh, uh, for the past couple of years, I've been the department head of the history department. And yeah, my day job is uh, teaching 19th century um, to uh, undergraduate and graduate students, and uh, directing uh, graduate students, PhD students projects to uh, completion, uh, and uh, hopefully uh, uh, to publication. Um, that's kind of what uh, we all aspire to do, and, and I've been lucky enough to be able to do it. Well, that is always good when that happens. Um, I was department chair here at ECU until uh, a year ago. I spent eight years doing that, so I send my deepest uh, uh, empathy. Uh, uh, it, it, not sympathy. It's not a bad thing to do, but it's. Uh, but, but I, I, I know how you feel. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. it, it can, it can only one great. department head can can. Truly, uh, <laughs> convey that to another one. <laughs> well, uh, our dean used to say regularly he thought department chair was the hardest job on campus because you you really have a lot of responsibility and you're responsible to constituency uh, in your department, your colleagues, and your students, and then upward to the administration, and you're you're just the gasket in between them, the ground between two stones. Well, that's I, nice I to thought hear. I've always thought a dean's job was probably the hardest on campus. Well, it, it, perhaps you'll have have the opportunity to find out. That would that would be uh, something to do. Um, no, I think I'm going to go back to writing books, Jerry. But <laughs> I appreciate the offer. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, I, I hear you there. I, I, this semester, I've got a temporary appointment directing a program. I haven't first time I haven't taught classes in 13 years, and uh, I'm anxious for the appointment to end and get back to. Uh, teaching and writing again. Uh, but let's talk about uh, your your book. 
we have just a few minutes before our first break, but what is the, the middle border? What is the West uh, uh, as you define it in this in this book? Well, the West, of course, is a, a massive place, uh, a place of imagination and a place of reality. And um, uh, effectively, most people saw the West by you know the, the middle of the 19th century as uh, uh, to the west of the Appalachian Mountains. But um, of course, anyone who knows anything about um, that vast expanse uh, knows that um, not all Wests were the same. And so my focus was really on those uh, states and areas that um, um, bordered in a, in a sort of a loose way the uh, Ohio River. Uh, the main focus states of, of my study are Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, Missouri, uh, and Kansas. Um, these are, uh, this is a place that, um, that was still in many ways um, uh, becoming, uh, but it was also a place that um, had tensions that other places didn't, particularly that, um, um, that surrounded the, uh, the sectional crisis and the, and the war itself. And then um, afterwards, the outcome. Uh, which was very much in doubt in terms of um, how people would um, um, would recover from, if that's the right word, and certainly um, would certainly interpret uh, the Civil War uh, to their own um, to their own best interests. Well, we we do tend to think of the war as a North and South phenomenon. People who don't know much about it, at least, will think that, uh, and and the importance of the the Western theater militarily and and politically, both during and before the war, are not lost on historians, but they're not always uh, the first thing people think of. Uh, Let's take a short break, come right back, and talk about why this was such a a, a, a malleable and and distinct, and and, uh, there there are so many words to describe this book that, that talk about the West. We'll use as many of them as we can when we come right back. Our guest tonight, Christopher Phillips, is the author of The Rivers Ran Backward, the Civil War and the Remaking of the American Middle Border. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. 
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com you are listening to civil war talk radio if you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today with Christopher Phillips, author of The Rivers Ran Backward, The Civil War and the Remaking of the American Middle Border. So we left off talking about where is the the middle border? Where is the West? Uh, Kentucky, uh, Missouri, Indiana, Illinois, Ohio. The what uh, th- this seems to be an extremely hot topic, uh, historically speaking. I'm, Thinking of some of the very interesting authors who've been talking about this on, on this show in the last year or two, uh, Patrick Lewis's book on uh, Kentucky slaveholding unionists, uh, Adam Marinson talking about St. Louis and the cultural civil war. Last month, Matt Hulbert talked about how Missouri bushwhackers turned into gunslingers in, in American cultural memory after the war. Uh, why do you suppose there is so much interest in this area today? That's a really good question. Um, I've been working on this region uh, off and on since the uh, since the '90s, and some of those um, those same individuals that that you mentioned uh, put out such wonderful work lately um, kind of affectionately referred to me as the dean of the border studies uh, <laughs> because I've been working on this so long. Uh, I think, to tell you the truth, uh, we've come to an, uh, a, a deep appreciation of the fact that, that uh, historians don't do gray very well. Uh, we've done black and white for a very long time, or if we want to put it in a different uh, frame, north and south. But when it comes to this question of the West and it comes to the question of the border, it's, um, there's a whole um, spectrum of, uh, of issues and, uh, and opinions and uh, and. Um, and personae who um, uh, have been overlooked for a very long time. And um, one word I didn't use in the book uh, was monochromatic, but that <laughs> strikes me as an appropriate term for this, uh, this middle border region. There were so many different uh, opinions and peoples and, uh, and uh, stances on this that, um, that were not neatly compartmentalized, and they certainly weren't reconciled in many ways after the war. Uh, and they weren't... Um, um, they weren't uh, the obvious feeders in, into the, uh, the sectional crisis. Um, in fact, I found that this region did everything it could uh, to avoid getting uh, pulled into that war until, of course, it did. Uh, and then the outcomes um, uh, brought us towards um, something that more approached that binary that we're all familiar with. Well, you described the pre-war middle ground uh, of which the Ohio River is the defining geographic feature between uh, Kentucky and the, the the Union states to the north. You describe it as an area that seems to be more bound together by the river. Uh, it's not a border that separates states, but rather the, the Ohio Valley is their common uh, identity, and they are 
and, and the people who live there define themselves in distinction to northerners further north in the Midwest, or especially those in the Northeast, but also in distinction uh, against those from the Deep South, that they, they see themselves having more in common with their neighbors across the river right. than people in their own region. Right. It was much more a borderland uh, than it was a border. In fact, that's, that's kind of a, a nice little um, um, slogan for the, for the overarching um, argument of the book is how does, how does a borderland become a, a hard border um, mm-hmm. that stretches all the way west uh, along not just the Ohio but the Missouri River to some degree uh, all the way to the Great Plains. Um, and, of course, that's the subject of the book. And, um, and I, I refer to, um, to the general uh, cohesion of, of the people of this region uh, as a consensus, a consensus about a number of things, uh, including a consensus on the uh, idea, at least until things began to change uh, in, the, in the antebellum period, um, a consensus on the issue of slavery, that uh, even though um, slavery didn't exist in some of these states, um, there were variants of it that did. Contract apprenticeship, for example, uh, persisted uh, in Illinois right up until 1850 and even dragged Lincoln himself in on, on, the, uh, on the side we wouldn't normally assume uh, for him in, in the sense that he actually uh, tried to or represented a Kentucky slaveholder and trying to get back his what he claimed was his fugitive property in 1847. And, and it doesn't seem to fit with our understandings of things. Um, that consensus, um, on the other hand, um, believed that slavery was an acceptable uh, institution, uh, constitutional, social, um, uh, economic, uh, in the places where it existed. Uh, for a very long while, uh, until uh, literally the 1850s, um, when we start to see some uh, striations beginning to emerge um, among the white population. Uh, this is a place that uh, for a very long time accepted the fact that slavery um, was part of the um, social fabric of the region and of the nation. And uh, in a very conservative way, um, uh, many did not believe that it should be changed. Um, and they opposed those who tried uh, very strongly um, in the antebellum years. Abolitionists were not welcomed. Uh, Yankees were not welcomed in many ways. Um, they felt that they were excessively moralistic, and they felt that in many ways um, they were changing or they were trying to upset a balance that had been uh, part of the American uh, experience since almost since its beginning. And these Westerners, um, actually, some of them uh, took the term conservative to mean those specifically that supported the existence of slavery and the perpetuation of slavery, even if they didn't um, uh, want it in there or, and didn't support it in the states that they lived. And, the, and so it gives a, a, a unique co- a character to this region, a place that um, was kind of the last made border, as I argue, in the, in the nation. Not the first made, but the last. Uh, and that that issue of slavery was not as divisive as, uh, as it would certainly um, have become in uh, farther north. So the, when we talk about the border states, uh, the, the states that border the Ohio River, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois to the north, the populations you're talking about who are sympathetic to the existence of slavery, even if it's not formally within their own state, uh, who are, are by no means racial egalitarians, 
we're talking primarily about the people living in the lower geographic third of each state. And uh, you point out many of them actually migrated there from uh, from points south, uh, from Kentucky and Tennessee and other places before that. Right. Um, I think that that um, constitutes one um, uh, contingency of, of this story. I think that actually that um, the, the lower third can be characterized and was characterized um, at the time as uh, butternuts, um, people who have um, Southern heritage, uh, with maybe the exception of the cities, which are much more uh, melting pots uh, than uh, places like St. Louis and, and Cincinnati and Evansville, um, Louisville to some degree. These are, these are very diverse places in many ways. But um, each state had its own, and what, what I find particularly uh, intriguing when I was doing the work on the book, uh, each state had its own had it had its own subdivisions, uh, and the upper third of each of those states above the river um, uh, were the, la- the last settled, and they tended to be settled more uh, uniformly, although not certainly not um, universally, by uh, people who had come from far- much farther north. Uh, in, in, from, the, from the region that would be, I guess, best described as the North. Uh, they came across um, by the 1840s and 50s uh, and kind of changed the composition of those, of those regions. But the most intriguing parts of those states um, were the middle third of each of them. And I found that particularly the third that Lincoln would have lived in by the 1830s uh, in Illinois, but also the same way in Illinois or in Indiana and, and Ohio. This this is the battleground. This is a place where there are all sorts of opinions uh, and and heritages and um, and political affiliations and, and beliefs. And it's also the place where um, where the Republican Party was born, uh, but a party that that was not born exclusively as a party. Um, devoted to ending slavery everywhere, but rather as a party in the West, uh, devoted to ending slavery spread. Uh, conversely, south of the rivers, um, we can't universalize those places either. Um, Missouri and Kentucky are very diverse places. Um, Kentucky's got the mountains in the east and, and then the bluegrass in the, in the middle. And then uh, in western Kentucky is, uh, is kind of the... Um, the floodplain, I guess you could say, um, where probably the, uh, the support for slavery was strongest, same way in Missouri. Uh, and you've got the Ozarks uh, that, that emulate to some degree the mountains of eastern Kentucky, uh, and both of those places tend to be supportive of slavery, but they aren't um, uh, devoted to it. And there are, um, there are very strong opinions, and there's a stronger sense of unionism when the war actually breaks out in those places. Uh, and the far, the far west states in Missouri are the most devoted, uh, and along the Missouri River, the most devoted to slavery. And they also are the last settled parts of those states. And they take slavery in, and the, by the 1850s, the uh, appreciation of the uh, value of slaves and, and of land make these places where um, where you know the true Western ideal of of anything, uh, any, everything good will happen uh, when one goes west. This is a place where these things are realized, and all of that happens just before the war itself comes. And so it's no surprise that those is, those are the places where its white populations felt 
the most um, invested in protecting slavery, and we see the um, um, uh, the rise of guerrilla warfare out of those regions probably more than anywhere else. Well, so when the when we get to the election of 1860 and, and the secession crisis that follows, uh, the how do these states vote? I mean, you, you describe them as being very uh, divided, the northern ones into these three three tiers and the, the southern states likewise geographically, politically, culturally divided. Uh, do, they, do they go with the north? Do they go with the south? Do they go their own way? <laughs> well, it depends on where you live. Um, the southern <laughs> counties, most of these states don't go for Lincoln. In fact, they go very much against Lincoln. Um, more of them go for Stephen Douglas than anywhere else. These are places that um, that really practice uh, an, uh, sort of an extended democratic um, ideal of localism, uh, and they really distrust uh, the Republicans, and they distrust the idea of the, the, their, the idea that seems to emanate from the Republican Party of centralization, uh, and that the the government should um, uh, should expand uh, in, in in its power and its influence, and so they oppose very much. Uh, in the northern uh, tier, as you said, uh, they're they're far more Republican. Uh, these are the last settled. These are the places that um, that uh, the railroad most uh, in these states most uh, accesses. Um, certainly not in the southern hills, uh, places like Indiana. Uh, in the middle is uh, really the the mixed portion, and they uh, the the old um, what one might call the Whig section of uh, sections of these states, and it tends to be, it leans Republican. Uh, but Lincoln, for example, um, does not win his home county of Sangamon, um, which surprises an awful lot of people when, uh, when one uh, um, confronts that. Um, but Lincoln himself had, uh, for a very long time as a Whig, fought against uh, a very strong Democratic Party that had uh, a deep in- inroads into the central parts of these states. And so it really depended upon wor- wor- where you were. Where uh, Lincoln didn't win uh, was uh, uh, south of the rivers. <laughs> he didn't win Kentucky. In fact, he, he, um, um, I think he got something like 1,600 votes total in Kentucky. Uh, and he didn't win Missouri except for the German um, settled portions of Missouri, and that was really St. Louis County and then uh, I think Gasconade County, which was uh, where Herman was. So Lincoln didn't fare well in, in large sections of these states, and that, um, that not faring well would then persist into the wartime politics uh, that he would have to, he and the Republicans would have to deal with. When the war begins, well, when secession takes place, that immediately becomes a a new, much clearer dividing line. Uh, you can have you know, nuanced views for or against slavery for different reasons, but when you're confronted with secession, you're either for it or against it uh, in some basic way. And this starts a polarizing process that you show throughout the book. Uh, it, in particular, it leaves those who, who are uh, pro-slavery, who partake of this, this uh, general white political consensus, uh, but don't support secession. It puts them in a, a difficult spot. Uh, just to, and then the war itself uh, brings all kinds of uh, uh, new influences. Now now these are no longer just political questions, but they become matters of, of uh, 
of, of violence, uh, whether you keep your property or even your life starts to depend on, on how you stand. Right. The war it's, power exerts itself, and that mm-hmm. changes the dynamics dramatically. Um, uh, one of the, you know, in, in initially in the, above the rivers, um, the, the strongest uh, response to war um, or to, to Fort Sumter, should I say, say in favor of, uh, in, in terms of volunteerism to the federal army, actually emerges in those southern counties. Um, you, you have a very, very high percentage of these people who, uh, who you know, uh, run the colors. Um, and, and they believe, in many ways, that they are fighting against uh, uh, a secession that uh, threatens to undermine, uh, the, as many of them said, the greatest government that uh, on the face of the earth, um, slavery was not considered to be by many of these people not considered to be part of the war power at that moment, much less part of the uh, the war issues. Um, this um, causes many of them to, to you know to uh, go into federal service uh, with you know sort of clear eyes. Uh, they are going to restore the union. Um, uh, south of the rivers, uh, we have. M- some of the same response, but not nearly as, as fervent. Uh, we don't have nearly the dramatic numbers of volunteers. But what we will start to see in those states is that polarization, very clear polarization, that there are a number that people have to make a choice as to whether they are going to support the government uh, in terms of uh, not only sending their children or volunteering themselves, but also in terms of supporting the war effort. And what you see is a murkier response there. You have ultimately many more soldiers who will fight, say, for Missouri for the federal government. Um, and in Kentucky, you'll have at least the same number fighting for the federal government as will fight for the Confederacy, at least in terms of white enlistments. Um, but and, you have uh, and, far more neutralists who refuse to, to fight for either side. Well, exactly. That, that, that was just what I was thinking, that you point out the, the number who don't fight uh, is larger in, in terms of percentage and even absolute numbers than many other states. We're going to take another short break. We'll come back in just a moment, talk more with Christopher Phillips, author of The Rivers Ran Backward, The Civil War and the Remaking of the American Middle Border. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. 
stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. This is Jerry Prokopovich talking today with Christopher Phillips, author of The Rivers Ran Backward, The Civil War and the Remaking of the American Middle Border. What I wanted to ask you about uh, now is, is the... The verb remaking, in particular, the in in the typical Civil War military history, the reader follows along as the armies sweep across the countryside. Your book does not focus on the armies sweeping across the countryside as much as what the countryside is like after the armies are gone, uh, after the Union has secured military control of, of Kentucky, for example. Uh, what is life like uh, for the civilians behind the lines in an area that's still politically divided, but now uh, now there's no question who's in charge, uh, but the civilians' attitudes are, are, are not necessarily changed. Uh, what, what goes on uh, behind the lines? Well, first of all, um, there was an occupation that uh, persisted throughout the war. It may not have been in every single community, but it was an awful lot of them in those states. Um, Many of those soldiers who had enlisted uh, either in those states, federal soldiers, uh, or from those above, um, would spend time in Kentucky and Missouri. On their way to the south, geographically, of course, it only makes sense. Uh, you've got those those rivers that are arteries in the west to uh, that will lead the federal army to victory, or um, at least um, uh, certainly will facilitate it. Um, and within the the communities themselves, then um, the the overriding uh, contest was over loyalty and disloyalty, and the federal government, or should I say, the federal troops. Were, uh, took an active hand in uh, deciding that or um, or determining it or defining it. Uh, maybe that's the better way. Uh, and so communities then found, find themselves divided uh, into what I call uh, communities of allegiance, uh, where you have um, neighbors and friends, uh, families um, uh, that take their stances one way or another or uh, trying to avoid taking a stance either in favor of the Confederates or the federal government, and they try to remain in the middle. And uh, many of those federal troops, and certainly the federal commanders, right up to the president himself, Lincoln, um, believe that neutrality and neutralism uh, is effectively disloyalty. And so in many ways, these people are caught in this, um, uh, in this one might call chaos, of, of events around them trying to maintain their own um, political stances and being increasingly pulled into these binary definitions, either as loyal or disloyal. Uh, and so that then uh, affects how people coexist. It certainly affects how people live, because if you find yourself on the loyalty list, uh, there you have uh, many of the same freedoms that you would have had uh, before the war came. 
but if you find yourself on the disloyalty list or on the neutralist list, uh, you find your liberties completely um, eroded. You find them um, squeezed. Uh, and that causes hard feelings, and it causes divisions, and it causes families to divide and, uh, and communities to divide. And uh, those, um, those uh, changes, those divisions, will lead to political divisions uh, and changes that will increasingly find more and more of the local white population um, pulled towards uh, a, a form of disloyalty uh, in which they no longer support the government's war effort, even if they uh, do not in, entirely support the secessionists or the Confederates, they find themselves more than sympathetic to it. And I find this great transformation to be the most, um, in, particularly in the states of Kentucky and Missouri, to be one of the most provocative parts of this whole war experience that was untold for a very long time, or only told in anecdote. The uh, and you show how this is how pervasive this is this kind of conflict, uh, even you say within families, uh, within church congregations, at ceremonial events, uh, anywhere. If if politics comes up, people are, aren't aren't able to even socialize with one another because if they're on different sides. Right. I had to dig really deep to get at this story uh, because the only way you could really find it is to go into family letters and church records and school records and, uh, and uh, the way that people talked uh, about their lives uh, during the war um, uh, oftentimes, as, as Walt Whitman said, didn't get in the books. Um, but I found in the very first collection... The very first repository I went to, and I went to uh, 30 of them, um, the very first box, the very first file, the very first letter, people were telling this story. They wanted to tell this story uh, because they lived this, and then they continued to live it in a different way once the war was ended. And the irony, of course, is that they, many of them, um, were, need, were not embraced fully by either the, uh, the victorious um, uh, Union or the, uh, the, the Unionist uh, trope, uh, the victorious trope at the end of the war, uh, or the Confederate um, uh, lost cause. They, they, they found themselves uh, a people apart, and uh, that caused them then to, um, uh, to, to retell their, their own stories in unique ways. Now, as this process is going on throughout the war of, of polarization, of uh, being forced to choose a side or appear to choose a side, uh, it seems not an overstatement uh, to say that, that you would argue emancipation is the, the single biggest factor in, in, in eroding what is left of the, the Western white consensus and, and developing two new identities of, of northerner or southerner. Is that fair to say? Yeah, ed- ed- emancipation was far more divisive than slavery had ever been. Uh, the end of slavery really fully divided. Uh, and it did it on, uh, on both sides of the river. We've, you've got um, deep, deep and persistent divisions that occur on the north side between those that um, Republicans very quickly called copperheads, um, these dissenters, uh, people who didn't agree with uh, uh, a number of things that the... Um, uh, that the war brought, um, but that emancipation uh, really crystallized for many of them. Uh, and many turned against the war uh, and would never come back to it uh, on the north side. Uh, on the south sides of the rivers, emancipation completely changed 
the, the nature of lives and uh, and in many ways, as uh, so many scholars have pointed out, it um, uh, it 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 made the war into one in which those who uh, supported slavery. Um, found themselves unable to support any part of that war because they knew that uh, if the war was to end slavery, then everything that they had believed about that war was wrong. Uh, or, or should I say their support, uh, however long that support was for, had been wrong. This plays out then, as you said a moment ago, after the war, the, we tend to think of the post-war era now a lot, a lot of people look at uh, David Blight's work, look at the, the reconciliation of the late 19th, early 20th century between white Northerners and white Southerners uh, agreeing to give up uh, any memory of, of race and slavery as part of the war in exchange for reconciliation. But something very different, uh, you argue, happens in the, in, in the, the middle ground, in the, the, uh, the Midwest, the Ohio River counties. Can you talk about this post-war irreconciliation. It's it's a complicated story. Um, uh, I call the process irreconciliation, uh, in which war memories uh, became vehicles for post-war politics, and uh, and war allegiances became both uh, weapons and also defenses um, that that go beyond simple um, party designations, Republicans and Democrats, all of those are certainly um, uh, important in this. where people stood on the war in many ways um, helped to uh, define them after the war in the eyes of those around them. Uh, and w- what in many of, of, of these people in this region, uh, whites, should I say, um, uh, found was that um, in this, this process of irreconciliation, um, their own sense of, uh, uh, of the war um, was in many ways created and, and, and redefined. Um, they became, uh, through their retellings, through their, um, through their experiences, through their family stories, through their politics, they became something different than they had been. They no longer were Westerners. Uh, Harry Truman's a perfect example of this. His family, uh, Harry Truman was uh, the, you know, the president that my grandmother idolized uh, much more than FDR. She felt he was plain speaking. He was, uh, he was a common man. He, she felt he was a classic Midwesterner. But to the day he died, Harry Truman considered himself a Southerner. You wouldn't know it by his accent. You wouldn't know it by, by um, uh, many things about his, uh, his appearance or anything else. But in his family telling of the Civil War, they had been preyed upon by Kansas Jayhawkers. They had buried their silver. They had um, supported the Confederacy or or some variant of the Confederacy in Western Missouri and Independence Missouri. Um, he always knew his family to be a Southern family uh, in that way, including the ownership of slaves. Um, but in many ways, um, those things get blurred. Uh, except when we peel away uh, the meta narrative and we look down into the the actual experiences of people, and they find themselves unable to um, to coexist with one another in the same way they had before. Reconciliation, in many ways, I think was a is a broad concept, um, uh, but irreconciliation probably best characterized how many of these people lived with and among one another for years. Uh, to come, and what we find in particular is that that irreconciliation divides this uh, this borderland into a hard border, 
one where people south of the river um, uh, adopt uh, a kind of a variant of the lost cause. In fact, I find that, that they, um, they kind of led the charge. Uh, that the first lost cause narratives and monuments and uh, are actually born in these um, states that were were sort of widowed by the Confederacy that they they didn't fully uh, join and that they were held in many ways um, by some Southerners uh, in the Deep South with contempt for that uh, and they compensated for it by uh, by um, what I call, a, what, a, uh, what I use a phrase of a former graduate student, a rehearsal for redemption in these states. On the north side of the river, um, y- you've got uh, something a little bit different that goes on. Um, the idea of, uh, of emancipation divides people so dramatically that they really can't accept the full terms of the victory. Uh, uh, and we're not just talking about dissenters. We're also talking many of those uh, supporters of the government that had, um, uh, in the West, who had opposed emancipation but continued to support the government. Um, we find this, this broader um, division that's emerging, uh, whereas uh, one, to be northern or to be considered northern in these states, one would have had to, one, have been a Republican and two, had, have uh, supported emancipation. Uh, but many in this region uh, didn't, uh, they might have done one, but they didn't do the other. And out of this, we start to see, um, in, uh, in particularly in the rural areas, we see um, some of those traditional uh, consensus, uh, particularly in terms of race, um, status quo mandates beginning to re- be re-implemented. Uh, sundown towns, lynchings, uh, white cappings, as they called them. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the idea that, um, that African-Americans would not uh, be allowed to live in certain places. Uh, the very first incident of what uh, uh, some historians call racial, racial cleansing in the United States occurred in Washington County, Indiana in 1864, specifically during the summer when Lincoln was running for re-election in which the white population drove out or killed uh, the entirety of its black population. Uh, you still see many of those places in places like Indiana, southern and central Indiana. Martinsburg is, is known as you know, the most racist town in America by some measure. But by the 1920s, we see the largest number uh, membership of the Ku Klux Klan in Indiana, particularly central and southern Indiana. Um, it is really a remarkable story. I'm going to have to cut you off because, unfortunately, it's gone by so fast we're actually out of time and need to turn over to the next show uh, on, on the station here. So we have to leave it here with a fascinating look at what happened before, during, and after the war in the Midwest. The book is The Rivers Ran Backward, The Civil War and the Remaking of the American Middle Border. The author is Christopher Phillips. Thank you so much for being on the show tonight. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.